2016 Obama report on the legal justifications for U.S. U.S. force abroad and other related military operations. I think I got that title right. And we're pleased to have moderating the panel this afternoon, Ken Anderson from American University. So Ken, I'm gonna turn it over to you and Bobby's gonna join us shortly, okay? All right, thank you so much. Let me just ask if the microphone is, you can hear me? Great. So long and I'm close to it. We'll move it a little bit closer. Um, okay, well, thank you very much uh, for having us here, and um, I'd like to thank the members of the panel, actually, for um, being here from various places. Uh, so we have Rita Simeon at Human Rights First, uh, Ashley Deeks here on this faculty, and Bobby Chesney of the University of Texas. And I think for this topic, you really couldn't come up with a better panel. Oh, I am not, now I am on, okay. Um, okay, so, um, so we have Rita Simeon from Human Rights First, Ashley Deeks from here at uh, University of Virginia, and Bobby Chesney from University of Texas. And I think for purposes of this panel, where we've been asked to talk about um, the use ad bellum principles, policies, uh, interpretations of law uh, found in the Obama December 2016 uh, kind of policy guidance, kind of something like a white paper, a sort of summary of policies developed uh, over a number of years. Um, it expresses these things and, um, and the folks on this panel, I think, uh, collectively know more about these things in the context, I think, especially of what the U.S. government was considering um, than you could find anywhere. So what uh, we're going to do is I'm going to start out by introducing this report and talk about what international use ad bellum law issues it brings up. And I'll do so by primarily focusing on uh, the stuff as it's laid out in the text itself. Um, but then we'll turn and we'll wind up asking a series of other questions, both about parts within that 2016 report, um, but also asking about a report that was mandated by Congress and that we'll have more explanation of um, later, uh, that resulted in a release by the Trump administration um, uh, updating, I guess one would say, reporting on, and Rita, I'm gonna let you tell us what the right words are for that. Um, and so we will want to compare these two things and see what's similar, what's different, and to the extent that stuff from the uh, 2016 report is ongoing and still regarded by the U.S. government as being the basic framework approach to these uh, questions. Um, I'd also like to pose to the panel, once we reach the kind of discussion stage, uh, as to the extent to which this is shared by friends and allies, points of agreement, points of disagreement, uh, evolution of this stuff into the future and kind of where um, one might see this going in relation to a changing uh, security environment in the world. So let me finish out uh, kind of what uh, I wanted to provide by way of introduction by saying a little bit more about the report and how the 2016 report came to be. 
Um, I think probably many of you would uh, be aware that over the course of the Obama administration in particular, um, it perceived keenly something that in fact stretches back to the Bush administration and particularly the uh, second Bush term, uh, of an understanding that there were a lot of things that were being done uh, in this kind of, you know, originally the global war on terrorism and sort of successive iterations out of that, in which legitimacy was a key question. Legal legitimacy, moral legitimacy, legitimacy in a public sense with both the U.S. public and uh, further abroad. And that there were many serious questions about these things, partly because some of them appeared to be just flatly wrong, um, and other parts of it as being novel interpretations, at least in the modern context, uh, in the context of counterterrorism operations against non-state actors operating across borders, transnational in that way. Uh, and that there was kind of at least in the view of successive U.S. administrations, gaps in what international law applicable to these situations would be and how that should be interpreted. That led by the time you get to this, really the second Bush term um, and then much more strongly into the uh, Obama years, into a series of speeches given by senior uh, officials of the administration, and in particular, from our point of view, uh, general counsels of various of the relevant agencies, uh, sometimes the attorney general, uh, sometimes the DOD general counsel, and various of these general counsels um, making speeches of this kind. Um, and these speeches were given over a series of years with the result that uh, their inconsistencies, just as policies changed over the course of that. Um, but in a way, they were sort of summarized, refined, thought out in terms of the inconsistencies over the various years, and resulted in a kind of, I guess I would say, gift from the Obama administration <laughs> to its successor. Tick, right. tick, tick. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, <laughs> Benjamin Wittes, the uh, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, is with us in spirit, partly because he's in this building. Um, uh, and he and I wrote the least read book <laughs> on the topic of the Obama administration speeches, where we sought to sort of draw these together. Um, and uh, he and I both saw this um, document as being something that we had certainly hoped for all along. That is, in some way, an evolving set of frameworks for the use of force against non-state actors across borders, counterterrorism operations, use of military force. Um, that stuff pulled together in a way that remained evolutionary, uh, but essentially was aiming at some form of institutional stability around these practices, legal interpretations, um, the bases of gaining some kind of legitimacy on this. Now, legitimacy is a very slippery term, uh, and in this context, it certainly does not mean agreement. 
Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that uh, even a sort of framework for the use of force in these contexts uh, would involve agreement of any kind on sort of every element. So, for example, detention at Guantanamo, um, targeted killing outside of hot war zones, every one of these things sort of individually. Um, but the Obama administration and the second Bush term made, I think, serious bets that they could achieve a certain kind of legitimacy, merited or not, um, simply on the basis of trying to explain to the public what they thought could be explained to the public without revealing things that shouldn't be explained to the public. Um, again, I share the sense that that was actually a good thing to do, despite all the things that could not and should not be said. Um, and not everybody would agree with that. Um, but that's, to a certain extent, how this document wound up evolving. Um, so this is kind of, I say gift, but it, it is, in a way, a gift looking beyond the specific frameworks and policies developed here, because the novelty of the situation that was faced, starting with 9-11, you know, or even before, uh, was one in which somebody had to reach interpretations about something, regardless of what those were, and the framework was going to matter to whoever came afterwards. Right? Path dependency, as the uh, behavioral economists like to talk about it. Uh, and in that way, I wind up um, sort of thinking that uh, the goal of institutional stability, something that isn't just the discretionary acts of one administration followed by the discretionary acts of the next administration followed by the discretionary acts of the one after that, um, that strikes me as a really bad idea. And some form of stability, I'd like to use the term institutional settlement, but that's probably too ambitious for what this document does in the context in which it's in. But that's captures a sense of continuity across um, presidential administrations and including across um, partisan lines and party lines and those kinds of things as well. Um, I think it's safe to say that the drafters of this document, um, which began you know, way before the election or anything like that, nonetheless probably didn't anticipate that they would be handing the document over to the administration today. Um, and so one of the questions is going to be, gosh, Ken, this sounds like a great uh, theory about institutional stability and continuity and all the rest, but what does that actually mean in the context today? Um, and you know, the one data point will be the Trump administration's um, uh, release that just took place um, pursuant to the updating of this document. All right, so my perspective on this is basically one of institutional settlement, institutional continuity, which uh, I hope is there, but I think is actually far too early to tell. But I do think that it was one of the primary motivations uh, standing behind this thing and the kinds of uh, international law interpretations and policies, defensible or not, that it winds up reaching. So against that background, we'll sort of go through the uh, panelists and ask people to sort of talk about the stuff that I haven't talked about, which is what it actually says about international law, uh, and take it from there. 
Rita, please. Sure. So I'll, I'll also, um, I think, give a little bit more um, background on how the 2016 report came to be and then how this new Trump administration update um, came to be because it's actually something that we spent a lot of time working on at Human Rights First, so have a, a slightly um, different sort of insider perspective to some extent. Um, although we're outside the executive branch, we're sort of inside the advocacy world that was pushing uh, for the 2016 report and as well as the update to it. So, um, which is a little bit different, I think, than some of the backgrounds uh, that you've just provided. Um, so, so rewinding a little bit back to you know 2014, 2015, um, you know there were a number of folks who had hopes that Congress might set some limits through either repealing or revising the 2001 authorization for use of military force. And I think um, as it became increasingly apparent that Congress was not likely to um, sort of rein things in or set some clear boundaries, um, it became that much more important that the Obama administration do so uh, before sort of passing things on to the next administration, whoever that might be, um, for the very reasons that you've laid out, right? Having some sort of um, continuity and clarity, um, but also something you haven't mentioned, there were sort of fears about um, further expansion um, in potentially problematic ways, and there was a desire to sort of uh, lock down some of the limitations, um, however limiting or not limiting um, you may find them to be, but at least to lock some of that in, because of you, as you've said, there's sort of eight years of very important high-level speeches where the administration laid out its positions and legal interpretations, but at the end of the day, once one administration is out, no one is really gonna care what the former State Department legal advisor or the former general counsel said in a speech that now doesn't really have um, much weight um, and, and doesn't have, um, it's not able to sort of force some of that um, continuity. Uh, and so uh, a number of us, um, Human Rights First um, in particular, really sort of led the charge to uh, work with and really push and challenge the Obama administration to uh, lock down um, some of these legal interpretations and approaches into one place so that um, people weren't having to go through and, and pull up eight or ten different speeches and compare them and see, as you said, if things had changed over the course of those eight years and really figure out um, what the view was and to, to have it sort of synthesized. So, you know, as, as your, the book that you wrote with um, Ben Wittes did, sort of try to synthesize and interpret it, but um, really we were urging them to synthesize it, put it together in one place, and to put it down in a way that was more official than um, an, an informal speech. And so in, in terms of having sort of like a law-making um, ability here where you've got an actual official legal position of the entire United States government all um, in one place is just a lot more um, useful. Um, so we actually uh, drafted some uh, sort of a model for how they might do this to partly to help do some of the work but also to show them um, that like this is actually a doable project. Um, of course they did it their own way unsurprisingly um, but I think that it was uh, really helpful that they, you know, they had both the book that you all wrote to show that a synthesis was possible, um, but then also we, we drafted sort of a sample memo like this uh, for them to build on and run with. And of course, we're very, very pleased that we did, even though we, you know, disagree with some of the legal interpretations um, that it contains. Uh, I think it's helpful still just to have the transparency. And fast forward um, to actually moving on to uh, the new administration coming in and the election of Donald Trump, 
um, there was con you know, a lot of questions are raised about how much continuity there really would be and what kinds of changes um, his administration might make and, and also whether we would know about any of those changes. Would they disclose those changes or just keep them secret? And um, based on that concern, um, we went to Congress and said, wouldn't it be great if, you know, you all have the power actually to make sure that if there are any changes to these legal positions and interpretations, um, that they need to say so. They need to let, um, at a minimum, need to let Congress know and um, where appropriate, really need to let the public know as well. And that, that resulted in Congressman Engel um, drafting an amendment to the um, National Defense Authorization Act, this section 1264, that required uh, the Trump administration to, uh, within 90 days of uh, that bill uh, taking effect, to produce a, a new framework report. And based on the 2016 report, and primarily what they were really required to do, uh, was to detail any changes that they had made from the Obama administration. Not only say what those changes were, but they had to actually explain and justify those changes. They had to provide the legal basis for the changes, the factual, factual basis, and the policy justification for those changes, and they needed to detail all of that in an unclassified report to uh, key congressional committees that have a sort of a stake and interest in these questions. Um, and then the provision, however, includes an option to include some of this information in an unclassified annex, which will, or a classified annex, sorry, thank you, uh, which I'll come uh, back to. Um, and then sort of really importantly, not for today's purposes, but for going forward, a section uh, 1264 also requires uh, the, this administration and all future administrations, right, there's actually no time limit on it, that any future changes uh, must also um, be described and explained and justified in unclassified form to the relevant congressional committees within 30 days of making those changes. Um, so that's a sort of forever, ever, and after um, really important requirement. Um, so then what do we actually get, right? So we have this um, really detailed report in 2016 from the Obama administration. You know, it's 40-something pages plus, you know, another 20 pages of footnotes. So you've got this sort of massive 60-page report um, that synthesizes um, a whole bunch of issues ranging from the use of bellum issues we're talking about today, but also um, important policies on civilian casualties, targeting outside areas of active hostilities, um, detention, military commissions, sort of a whole host of um, significant issues. The Trump administration report um, at least the uh, unclassified version that is now publicly available upon Just Security, and Charlie Savage has tweeted it out so you can get your hands on it. Um, it's only about eight and a half pages that is unclassified and publicly available, but um, I think there's a lot that we can learn um, from what's in that um, eight pages and sort of what's not in there, and in some places they indicated there is more on topic X in the classified um, portion. Um, but of course, for those of us who don't have access to it, it's really hard to know. I think to answer your sort of main question about this continuity and what has changed um, or not changed, it's really hard to know if the publicly available version just says nothing. Um, and I, I know other folks are going to get um, sort of more into the the weeds on some of the like substance of the legal issues that are raised in both versions of the report. But just to tick off, off a couple of things that. Um, are in and not in the updated version. Um, so there's a lot less international law um, 
basically the, the entire use ad bellum discussion, as far as I can tell, um, that whole section, I mean, you really can just go through the table of contents of the 2016 report and compare it to the eight um, page version that was released. And you can see that the many of the headings are still the same, but then they'll just be whole chunks that are just missing. Um, and hard to know if there's something on that in the classified version or not, if it doesn't say so. But um, the interpretation of the 2001 AUMF um, section. There's just a note that says there's more on this in the classified section. Um, there's some different new stuff on the Article II authority, which is sort of outside the scope um, of this discussion today. But the entire uh, use ad bellum international law discussion, which is like a very long, detailed section in the Obama report, is just absent um, from the eight-page public version. Um, but they do include uh, the theater by theater um, descriptions of sort of what we're doing in the seven countries that they named where the U.S. is um, conducting military operations. And they detailed in a couple places some changes or new information. You know, they talk about some of the serious strikes that had happened since the Trump administration um, took over. And they add Niger, um, of course, to the list. Um, but they don't... Um, well, then they don't really have many changes other than that, frankly. They, um, they say in most instances, there's the exact same line is repeated that says the domestic and international legal basis for what we're doing in this country is the same as what was articulated in the 2016 report. And that's where I think that the, the folks who think that the eight-page report was sort of a giant nothing burger um, are sort of missing the point because... Yeah, if you were expecting some big, sexy, interesting, like, oh my gosh, they've had these radical departures and done something really different um, and juicy, then yeah, it's not that exciting. Um, but if the point was to establish the extent to which there is continuity and to make sure that the public and Congress are aware of whether there's continuity or not, those uh, sentences that say our legal basis is exactly the same as what was articulated previously, um, that's really, really important um, for the public to know. Let me, um, Ashley, before we um, turn to you, I was going to put this into my introduction, but then looked at the clock and thought that I was running out of time. But I think, um, I think it's probably worth it if I just walk through the sections of the ad bellum, the substance of it a little bit in the 2016 report in order to identify what's there. So there is a chapter two in the 2016 report called International Law in the U.S. Uh, use of military force and refers to the use of military forces abroad. Um, I think more accurate would be to say the use of military or other national security uses of force abroad and to second qualify that by saying um, that this, is, this document is really about uh, force directed against non-state actors. Right? That that's really what um, this is about. And so it starts from the kind of standard international law place of saying from an ad bellum perspective, uh, the United States recognizes three circumstances for where international law does not uh, prohibit the use of force, that which is authorized by the Security Council, use of force in self-defense, and third, use of force in an otherwise lawful manner with consent of the territorial state. Um, and then it proceeds to walk through each one of those, um, sort of discussing uh, applications under each. Of these, I would say the most important by far is um, the self-defense um, aspects of this. And there's a 
statement of basic principles about this and makes note of the pre-existing customary law on which this is uh, based. Um, and then turns to self-defense against non-state actors. And one of the critical issues that has been in the international debate throughout all of this time has been, can there be an armed conflict with a non-state actor cross-border? Uh, can you be at war with Al-Qaeda? Right. The US has answered that question in the affirmative for a very long time. It faces lots of pushback uh, right up to this minute um, from abroad. Um, and the second question um, is going to be, what are the threshold levels that establish that you're in an armed conflict from an ad bellum perspective? Uh, and what about that triggers in bellow rules, namely the uh, rules governing the conduct of hostilities rather than, for example, human rights law, uh, the combatant's privilege, right? I mean, the ability to engage in lawful uses of force under the rules of war um, without you know, sort of uh, consequences of being uh, held as a murderer. Um, the second, or the third section in this self-defense section talks about uh, the, again, equally contested, debated, argued over right up until this minute. Question of under what circumstances, if any, is it okay to respond in advance of any kind? That is, the imminence doctrine. Is it okay, and if so, under what circumstances can you say, we're acting now because there is some kind of um, uh, armed attack or use, uh, unlawful use of force which is imminent and what that means. Uh, the U.S. interpretation of that under the Bush through Obama administrations has been one that, uh, again, contentious, the idea of continuing imminence, the idea that a threat can be imminent, but it can also be a continuing one, and more uh, importantly, perhaps, that it, the threat, the imminent threat can consist of a group itself and that essentially um, dealing with the threat can require dealing with the group not tied to any particular threatened um, incident or attack. Um, fourth section, self-defense and the unable or unwilling doctrine, uh, and I'm gonna just set that aside for, um, uh, for Ashley. Um, and then five, uh, the application of use ad bellum in an ongoing armed conflict. The, again, every one of these things contested, controversial, lots of pushback from lots of different places. Um, but essentially the idea that once it's game on, an armed conflict, in this case with a non-state actor group such as Al-Qaeda, doesn't stop to be game on until it's done, right? whatever exactly that means. But once it's game on, the rules of war apply, and that continues until some point of which it's game off because in some way or other as a legal matter, um, it's over. That means individual instances and individual engagements during the course of, for the United States now, this ongoing armed conflict since at least 9-11, all of the things that happen in the midst of that and against parties that are taken to be part of that armed conflict do not require any further analysis of imminence or any of those considerations. 
Um, and then finally, the consent to use force and otherwise um, lawful manners, consent by other states. Uh, let me leave that aside. Um, and then there is a section in the report that addresses the question of the end of the armed conflict, um, which was a dream of the Obama administration. It wanted to end America's wars. That was a huge part of it. And then ISIS burst forth on the scene and things got a lot more complicated. Um, and then there are various other things related to working with others that I think have enormous bearing on today's uh, rise of proxy wars using kind of various uh, non-state groups in various ways. Uh, and uh, a series of questions related to how one interfaces with allies that may have different interpretations of the law. So I'm sorry to break in and uh, add that, but I think the sort of substantive uh, international law that's in the report is um, important to getting a sense of what the disagreements are. So Ashley, with that, let me turn it to you. Great, Ken. I think that was uh, an excellent introduction overview and a good way to tee up what I was hoping to talk about. Um, which falls within the self-defense paradigm that, that Ken explained as part of the report. Um, and this is this idea of uh, how you figure out when it is acceptable to use force against a non-state actor that is operating inside some other state's territory, right? It's not a case in which a state has attacked you. It's potentially a case in which a non-state actor has attacked you. And to respond to that with force means you are, by definition, using force inside another state's territory. And so the idea that the um, United States has taken for a long time, this is not a Trump administration alone view, this is not an Obama administration alone view, this stretches back um, as far, I think, as President Carter talking about the Iranian hostage situation, um, is this idea that it is acceptable for a state to use force in self-defense inside another state's territory against a non-state actor where the territorial state is unwilling or unable to suppress the threat posed by those non-state actors. Um, I think the way to think about this in an international law sense is that it is part of the necessity inquiry, right? After you suffer an armed attack, um, your right to self-defense is potentially triggered, but to figure out if you can use force in response, you have to assess whether it's necessary for you to do so. And so what you're asking in the unwilling or unable context is, not only is it necessary for us to use force against that non-state actor that attacked us to suppress their threat, but also is it necessary to use force inside that territorial state? And in, and in asking that question, what you were assessing is whether that territorial state can manage the problem for you. That's, I think, the, the unwilling or unable test. And the reason that I wanted to talk about it today is I, that I think it's actually an issue that, um, again, as I said, it's a position that the U.S. has taken for a long time, but the Syria context has raised a couple of interesting um, nuances to and challenges to the test that I thought would be potentially in interesting to talk about. The first thing I would say um, at a 5,000-foot level is that the Obama report makes clear, I think, that the government's preference is always going to be for consent, right? The first move that, that you would engage in is, can we get the consent of the territorial state to allow us to come in and use force against those non-state actors? That is a far less contentious context. Um, you can imagine why the unwilling or unable test is more contentious, because it could be that the territorial state disagrees with your assessment that they themselves are unwilling or unable. 
And so I think we're actually, um, in Syria, it, it, this has come up in, a, in a, a couple of different ways, this contentiousness. In the beginning of the, um, the U.S. decision to use force against uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria, Iraq was an easy case because we had the consent of Iraq. So then the assessment was that Syria, that the Assad government was unwilling or unable to suppress the threat posed by ISIS. And that seemed pretty facially clear, that he had lost control over the parts of Syria in which ISIS was operating. So that seemed, to the extent that the test is ever non-contentious, that um, application there seemed um, pretty easy. But then Russia joins, right? Then Russia says, uh, you know, President Assad, we're going to come in and we're going to start to assist you. And so that actually opened a question. I should say it was flagged by somebody who had been in one of my seminars. He wrote a lawfare post about this because he said, well, look, if Russia comes in and says to Assad, we're here to help you and we're going to target ISIS, is Syria still unwilling or unable to suppress the threat against ISIS? I think what we saw as a factual matter is that even if Russia said that it was interested in fighting ISIS, it ultimately wasn't so interested. So as a factual matter, you could still claim fairly, I think, that Syria was unwilling or unable. But you see how the introduction of allies can change that inquiry. Um, the second debate uh, harkens back to, I, I've mentioned and Ken mentioned that unwilling, unable is contentious. Um, the, I guess the question I want to uh, raise here is, um, what have other states said beyond the United States in the context of Syria? Have there been actions taken in Syria that cause us to think that the unwilling, unable test is more or less contentious than it used to be? And I'd submit actually that Syria offers a number of cases in which other governments have come out and clearly stated their acceptance of the unwilling or unable test. Um, sometimes in Article 51 letters, which are letters that a state submits to the Security Council uh, when it has taken an action in self-defense. So countries like Australia and Canada and the UK, in their Article 51 letters, have invoked the test as a justification for using force inside Syria in collective self-defense of Iraq. So there are still people who object to the test, who feel it's a combination of objecting to the slippery slope that you might find yourself on if you have um, made it too easy for one state to use force inside another state on pretextual grounds, coupled with, I think, the question that Ken flagged, can you be in an armed conflict with a non-state actor? So that is still um, debated. There are some states that have been inconsistent in their objections to the test. And in particular, I'm thinking of Iran and Russia. So Iran asserted the, the viability of the test when it was going in and using force in Georgia in the Pankisi Gorge against terrorists. It said that Georgia was unwilling or unable. Um, and likewise, Iran, for a long time, had used the test vis-a-vis -vis the PKK in Iraq, who they claimed were attacking them from inside Iraq. Um, but they have later made statements that seem to resist that test. And so one question is, how do you think about later in time statements um, made in a context in which they themselves were um, not actively engaged in fighting non-state actors versus using it in cases in which they were the ones fighting the non-state actors. A third area of debate, um, and Rita, Human Rights First may have views on this as well. I know the International Committee of the Red Cross does. When you use force in self-defense under an unwilling, unable theory, you are using force inside another state. And the question is then, are you in an international armed conflict with the territorial state on whose uh, territory you've just used force. 
The United States thinks, no, you're in a non-international armed conflict with a non-state actor against whom you're using force, but it doesn't necessarily affect your relationship, per se, with the territorial state. You are trying to cabin your attack only to where the non-state actors are. You're not going ahead and bombing the Ministry of Defense of the territorial state. But the ICRC says, look, you are using uh, unwelcome force on another state's territory, and you are effectively opening up an international armed conflict with that state. So that remains another area of dis dispute. Um, a, a fourth area uh, is the question about when do you have to refresh the inquiry? So this relates a little bit to the Russia example, but we're now many years, three, four years, past the opening of the conflict, the opening of our use of force inside Syria. Does the US have an obligation to revisit its analysis of whether Assad remains unwilling or unable? Mm -hmm. Now that Assad uh, is much more successful in the conflict. He seems to be winning it. ISIS has significantly diminished its power. Can we still say that Syria is unwilling or unable to suppress those residual ISIS fighters? Um, I think I'll stop there and we can pick up some other stuff in, in comments. Okay. Bobby. Okay. So I'm going to use this time to weave together a number of things that uh, m most of which conceitedly is not strictly about USAID Bellum, uh, but it's going to pick up the theme of where we are with the 2016 and 2018 reports and, and put a little more flesh on the bones. Uh, and I'm actually going to begin by going back very briefly to the Bush administration, uh, G.W. Bush, not G.H.W., and, and re remind us all of the, the original framing of the global war on terrorism as an armed conflict with a non-state actor that was subject to the law of armed conflict but had no particular geographic borders. That is to say that uh, the law of armed conflict would apply wherever the United States and Al-Qaeda might inter interact with one another. And of course, as we all know, this was an immensely controversial claim. Um, and, and there are two particular themes, among many others, that stood out with the pushback the uh, administration received. One was a view that the law of armed conflict and the idea of an armed conflict should be geographically uh, circumscribed rather than simply extending wherever the participants might show up around the globe. And then related to that, the argument uh, by critics of the Bush administration position that human rights law uh, rather than the law of armed conflict would uh, apply as the governing uh, framework insofar as we're measuring a particular, say, use of lethal force in an area that didn't fit geographically with notions of a more traditional combat zone. Uh, and though not always clearly articulated, especially in the first term of the Bush administration, the, the, the administration's position in effect was that it's not that geography isn't relevant, it's that LOAC and, and circumscribed notions of LOAC, that's not how you uh, acknowledge the geographic consideration, but rather that's the law of the UN Charter that's relevant there. So the administration position would boil down to there's an armed conflict wherever we might find Al-Qaeda, yes, but that doesn't mean we can actually use those authorities at our discretion anywhere in the world insofar as someone shows up in country X for the first time and we are otherwise inclined to use force there. There's a UN Charter analysis to go through. There's a USAID Bellum analysis to go through. Um, Separately, of course, there's also the response to the human rights invocation that famously involved arguing, A, if we're right that the law of armed conflict does apply wherever we're interacting with them, that's the lex specialis. That's going to displace uh, either categorically or on a rule-by-rule -rule basis. Uh, that's going to displace human rights law. And secondly, we don't accept that 
binding instruments of otherwise binding instruments of human rights law like the ICCPR actually apply extraterritorially, so therefore we don't think the problem arises for us. All of this very much contested. So along comes the Obama administration. And I think it's fair to say that in many quarters, the expectation was that there would be a lot of pullback from these positions. Um, but in actual practice, it turned out to be otherwise on the particular points I was just emphasizing. Uh, and most notably, the Obama administration for eight years very steadfastly and successfully defended the proposition that there was an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and that it did not, from an armed conflict perspective, didn't have geographic borders. Um, Ken mentioned the speeches. I want to highlight one speech from relatively early in the Obama administration in particular. It's in the book, um, Speaking the Law, the book you should get. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> um, be sure to leave a review. Five stars, please. Uh, the John Brennan speech. The John Brennan speech when he was still counterterrorism advisor at Harvard Law School. Uh, and the theme of the speech was practical, not actual, but practical convergence between the American position and the human rights-oriented position of critics. Um, I was there for this. It was, it was fascinating because he, he made clear early on in the speech that he was going to take the position and defend the position that, as a practical matter, the policy positions of the Obama administration overlaid on top of their legal positions closed the gap to the point where we really shouldn't argue too much anymore, or we, we at least should minimize the importance of the arguments. So, so how, did he, uh, how did he explain that? What he said was, that in those geographic locations where America was sporadically using force, that is, in the places where we were conducting drone strikes in particular, but that because of the sporadicness of the U.S. involvement and the lack of overt boots on the ground presence, our critics were suggesting that those places were not governed by the law of armed conflict and that questions about the propriety of killing someone from an international law perspective should be viewed through the human rights lens, he said, we end up in the same place because the administration had adopted or was adopting a variety of policy constraints that made our uses of force in those locations turn out to be more or less compatible with what at least some versions of a right to life human rights law model might otherwise allow anyways. Um, this was an early public discussion of what then later on became much more formalized in the so-called PPG. The, was it the Presidential Policy Guidance? Do I have that right? I get the acronym so screwed up. Uh, the PPG, which was the formalization of exactly that sort of approach. And I want to underscore the, the key elements here. And I'm glossing over a lot, but I'm, I'm going to hit the key points. It, the PPG, as a matter of policy, not claimed legal constraint, but as a matter of policy, drew a distinction between those locations that would henceforth be categorized as, quote, areas of active hostilities, areas of active hostilities, such as Afghanistan, and distinguishing them from everything else. The model was still that there is an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and its associated forces, and that that existed wherever the parties would interact with one another. But it was an acknowledgment that there's, there is some kind of difference between areas of active hostilities and other places. So what turned on this? Well, first, let me say something quickly about the Obama administration's model of what the rules were in those areas of active hostilities, such as Afghanistan, um, what the law of armed conflict permitted. But let's not forget also that there's always the policy-inflected overlay of the rules of engagement. 
And, and just to give one particular example, there are innumerable examples over the years in Afghanistan where commanders, for a variety of uh, strategic, operational, tactical reasons, will overlay further constraints beyond what the law of armed conflict would, uh, would require, including limitations on um, the risk you can take with collateral damage. Um, but the basic model was that's all sort of commander's discretion, the law of armed conflict would govern. The interesting question, of course, was under this policy framework, what about the areas that are not areas of active hostilities? Um, law of armed conflict still providing the baseline, but now the idea was uh, that force would not be used except where certain conditions were met. For example, uh, target only individuals posing an imminent threat to American lives. So two things to highlight about that. Uh, the, the imposition or the apparent imposition of an imminence, imminent threat to life uh, standard, which sounds like human rights law, and then a further narrowing to make it specific to threats to American lives as opposed to uh, territorial uh, state citizens or, or allies or others. Uh, secondly, uh, and I'm not exactly going in the order of the PPG itself, but I'm just trying to hit the highlights, a near certainty, near certainty that the target that you have in mind will in fact actually be in the strike zone, a near certainty that there will be zero civilian casualties. No feasible option for capture, so that preference for capture over lethal force that is characteristic of right to life analyses in human rights law. Uh, and then critically, though this part's a little less clear exactly how it worked, but I think the general outline can be said pretty clearly. Um, nominations for targets getting vetted at back in DC through an interagency process, a high level approval process where more than just DOD would have a hack at uh, the decision whether to approve somebody. And there's all sorts of memoirs giving us lovely play-by-plays of how some of those debates played out. Now, all this goes into and is part and parcel of what's memorialized and quasi-institutionalized through the 2016 report. There are other key elements as well, and I, I think uh, Rita can probably explain it better than I can, but the transparency elements were really important here. Uh, public reporting about civilian casualties, the possibility of ex gratia payments, and so forth. Um, fast forward to the election of Donald Trump. I think it's fair to say that most observers, many of us, and certainly myself included, ex just assumed that a lot of this would change. And that that's what's exactly, as Rita said, that's what was so important about what I think of as the policy canary, that is the statutory requirement uh, to report changes. Um, and as 2017 went along, mostly through the writings of Charlie Savage at the New York Times, we got little glimpses of the internal Trump administration debate about what, if anything, ought to change in this package. By September last year, he was able to report some things. He was able to report that through a, in the midst of a sharp interagency debate, a consensus appeared to have been reached. It was pretty remarkable uh, because it appeared to keep most of the PPG elements I just described. Um, and then later on, Charlie reported that in, by October of this past year, Trump had signed off on this policy. It's not the PPG anymore, it's the PSP, which sounds like a game station of some kind, but the PSP, the Policies, Standards, and Protocols, I think? It's, it's maddening, right? But keep with me. Just The PPG had been replaced by the PSP, and insofar as you can trust Charlie's reporting and the, and the sources anonymously disclosing details to him, for we don't have this document, and it's not in, the de these details are not in the eight and a half pages that Rita described in the May 2018 report that just came out. Nonetheless, I think Charlie's got a pretty good track record and the details seem pretty consistent and I've not seen anyone denying that they're accurate. 
so what, what is the takeaway here? Um, let me sum up. It keeps the idea of a policy-driven distinction between areas of active hostilities and those that aren't. Incredibly, to me, uh, much surprise. It keeps the rule about civilian casualties, though I believe it, it dials down the degree of certainty from near certainty of zero casualty uh, to reasonable certainty. So that is, a, that is a loosening, but it's keeping the zero casualty expectation standard, which is, is, is certainly remarkable and not, it kind of goes against type, I suppose you could say. I think it keeps the capture preference, though that's not as clear. Uh, on the other hand, there are some things that change, and they're significant. Um, it's no longer the case that targets have to be shown to be an imminent threat to U.S. lives, which in practical terms translated into a requirement that you have a relatively senior operational planner or leadership type person. Now it, it's quite clear that the change was in the nature of allowing the full scope of law of armed conflict targeting concepts to be employed, meaning uh, members of the organized armed group in general. Um, and then even more critically, though harder to, harder to articulate exactly where the bite is, but I think this will resonate for anyone who's been involved in these sorts of interagency inter debates, no more review of the individual nominations and decisions at the White House interagency level. Rather, the authority to make the decision whether to attack has been pushed out to the commanders. Uh, this is part and parcel of a larger Trump administration push to devolve decision-making authority out into the field, which on one hand is empowering of the commanders in the field, but on the other hand, uh, it does create a little space as well for post hoc criticism, including from the commander in chief, and we've seen one instance of that already. Um, it suggests then that you've got this reasonably significant degree of loosening in what it means to be in one particular location as opposed to another. Now let me argue to you that it's not as significant as it seems because the PPG was never as constraining, in my opinion, as it was designed to sound like it was. Uh, I say that for a couple of reasons. First, consider the idea of this geographic distinction. Um, when that proved inconvenient at a time when the initial slate included Afghanistan and then later Iraq and Syria but did not include other locations, uh, that proved particularly inconvenient when it was a desire on the part of the Obama administration to provide air support to uh, Libyan government forces trying to retake the city of Sirte from Islamic State forces, since the nature of the aid needed was, um, you know, air attack, um, you know, close air support on unidentified members of the Islamic State. Um, they simply designated the area around CERT and its environs to be an area of active hostilities for such time as those operations were going on. Underscoring something that was obvious on paper, but there was a demonstration that this distinction, if inconvenient, could simply be turned off. Um, Trump, early on in his administration, apparently did the same thing with respect to certain areas of Yemen and Somalia. It was a continuity point with the Obama administration using that feature of a, of a policy-only framework. Um, secondly, the idea that it would be terribly constraining under the PPG in the non-active hostility zones because you're only supposed to target the particularly significant figures who are operationally planning against American targets. Um, notwithstanding that, in Somalia in particular, during the final year of the Obama administration, you had no small amount of airstrikes that really weren't squareable with and weren't attempted to be explained publicly as consistent with that particular framework and the language of self, unit self-defense, extended unit self-defense, defense of Amazon forces was generally rolled out and there, there were a number of these examples. So 
as is often the case with these sorts of standards, they can look pretty constraining, especially when we use the magic word eminence, but combining the idea of eminence with the, the idea that actually that's really last window of opportunity against a continuing threat and, and uh, the fog of war and all the rest, it's not actually that constraining. So what's interesting about this is that uh, the, the politics and, and general sense of trust associated with the Obama administration, of course, doesn't carry over to the Trump administration, quite the reverse. And so you're, you're going to see much more attention and scrutiny, and we are seeing much more attention and scrutiny, and I think that's good, uh, to whether or not it's really true that there's much constraint outside of the areas where everyone would roughly agree that there's armed conflict going on. So I think the issues of geography that, that we're supposed to be mainly talking about and that I began with, they're going to rise back to the surface. We're going to see this more and more. Um, all that said, I do feel duty bound to say something about the UN Charter issues. And I, I guess what I would say is, uh, in keeping with what Rita pointed out, uh, I see nothing but continuity from the Bush administration through Obama to Trump now in terms of the locations where we're actually using lethal force being locations where we either have a consent argument or we have an unwilling unable argument. And I don't see examples that are contrary to that. So I, I see a lot of consistency over time. Bobby, thank you. No. Rita did exactly what I had asked her to, which was to lay out the framework, especially for how you got from the 2016 report to the Trump report. Um, but Rita, it didn't give you a chance to really express your own views and questions and uh, thoughts about this. So I'm going to give you sort of first shot at reacting to what anybody has said on the uh, panel so far. Yeah, sure. So I'm trying to jot down probably six different, <laughs> not necessarily related things. I'm going to try to um, tick some of them off. Um, the last one of which was sort of triggered by um, this last point about the continuity between the three administrations, um, which I think, you know, may be somewhat true on sort of a macro level, um, but then there, there are a lot of differences once you sort of get down into the details. But um, one place that I will flag in particular, though, where it's not necessarily clear um, because of the the lack of transparency on the international legal bases in particular, um, it's hard to say, other than line, the lines where they said it remains the same, um, the overarching explanation and interpretation in detail is not in there, so we don't know how much of, uh, of that, those details remain, remain the same other than them saying that, you know, our, our justification for being in Afghanistan, or our justification for being in Iraq, those sort of remain the same. The one place where there, I think, might be some uh, differences, or at least there's reason to think there might be a difference is with respect to Syria and the, the strikes uh, well, in response to sort of pro-Syrian and Syrian regime forces. We don't know what the Obama administration's justification for that would have been because that hadn't happened yet, so it was sort of a new development. Um, but then um, an even sort of um, stronger difference has to do with the missile strikes that the Trump administration took um, against the Syrian airfield in response to the chemical weapons attack, um, something that the Obama administration contemplated and decided not um, to use force in response to earlier uses of chemical weapons. And so I think there's um, probably a pretty strong difference in how things sort of came down on that front. Um, and that is in some of the eight-page public section um, that the Trump administration put out. Um, on some of the other points um, that 
you raised, um, I think that just sort of underscores the problem of uh, policy. So you talked about sort of Brennan and others in the Obama administration saying it's everything's okay. We've sort of, there's not that much daylight between those who think human rights law applies and those who think armed conflict rules apply because we have all these policies that get us, um, if not all the way there, at least um, a little bit closer. Um, but the problem is uh, sort of, as, as you said, even under the Obama administration, when there was sort of pressure to not apply those human rights-ish rules, they just didn't apply them, right? They either temporarily declared the area to be an area of active hostilities um, to which the policy didn't apply. And then, of course, when you have a new administration um, coming in, they're just not bound to the policies of the prior administration. So I think it's, you know, from a human rights perspective and for those who think human rights um, rules legally apply, um, especially the right to life, which you can sort of get around the extraterritorial application of the ICCPR um, issue when you're talking about drone strikes in particular and the right to life, which is sort of a, a most people think of as uh, a use Kogan's norm that is universally um, binding, regardless uh, of the treaty obligations or extraterritorial application of the ICCPR. Um, and then so the next uh, issue of concern for me is the transparency um, piece of it. And I think that you know the Obama administration report was so important um, because of how much detail was in there and the transparency um, the, the very sort of pro-transparency approach that they at least attempted to take, even if they didn't always succeed. Um, and on the PPG in particular, um, you know, that Brennan sort of previewed that they were developing a policy. When Obama actually signed the policy, he announced it the very next day in a big speech, and uh, the White House issued a fact sheet that detailed the substantive, if not, you know, the more in the weeds procedural aspects of the policy. And then eventually, under pressure of litigation from the ACLU, um, they released a redacted um, version of the full presidential policy guidance. Um, so there was quite a bit of transparency, at least you know, with respect to that policy. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there was an executive order on civilian casualties uh, where the administration also um, sort of voluntarily decided to uh, um, start annual reporting on civilian casualties uh, caused by U.S. strikes outside areas of active hostilities, including DOD and CIA. Uh, strikes. Um, it sort of remains to be seen whether the Trump administration will carry um, that requirement forward. That reporting um, would be due May 1st. And just as a sort of related side note to that, another provision that Congress passed um, requires reporting on civilian casualties. It's limited to DOD strikes, but it doesn't have that same outside areas of active hostilities limitation on it. It's for all US um, military operations that are reasonably suspected to have caused civilian casualties and has some other requirements in it as well. Um, but I think it's really, really troubling that um, there's been all this reporting from Charlie Savage on you know, the Trump administration considering changes to the PPG, details of what changes um, they made, and yet there has been not only no description, summary, forget the policy itself being released in, even in redacted form, but there's not, there hasn't been an announcement, there hasn't been a fact sheet, there's really been um, not even an acknowledgement that changes officially um, have been made, and uh, once again, the ACLU has FOIA'd the new policy, and the litigation response of the administration has been like, we can neither confirm nor deny that there have even been policy changes at all, um, which is a really troubling departure from the, the past administration on that front. 
Um, and then I would sort of clarify a couple of the details uh, on, that Charlie Savage reported on the changes. And again, like we don't know if Charlie Savage got it right. Um, and it goes to the problem overall of transparency is that we don't even know which things that we, you know, like or don't like or agree with or don't agree with um, that the administration is doing because frankly, we don't know what they are. We can only speculate. Um, but there were a couple of things that I would, um, that I think are, um, have been reported a little bit different from what you said, which is the, um, we don't actually know about the capture requirement. And that's really an important piece in terms of how much daylight there is between um, applying the law of armed conflict and a, a policy that gets you somewhere in the human rights law uh, realm. Um, the, the capture, when feasible, maybe the when feasible is a little squishy, so um, doesn't quite get to the level of what human rights law requires, but at least is kind of meeting you part of the way there. There's just been no, his stories actually just don't say anything about the capture requirement. Um, and I don't think he, he or others um, that don't have access to the classified information actually just know the answer to that really important piece of the policy. Um, I think it's really important, as you notice, that they eliminated the um, continuing imminent threat, even though, again, that was sort of continuing imminent is not quite getting you to what human rights law requires. You're at least part of the way there. But by eliminating that requirement, you've, you're really way out of the ballpark of uh, a human rights um, lethal force um, standard at that point. And then they did actually keep the very um, high near certainty of no civilian harm for these strikes outside areas of active hostilities, which I think is incredibly important that they kept it. It demonstrates that they think that it, that is um, an achievable standard to have that very, very high uh, near certainty standard. Um, what they lowered to the reasonable certainty is that the target is actually present. Um, but that sort of, that raises problems about how can you be certain that there's no civilian, you know, civilians that are going to be in harm's way if you're not even sure that the person you're killing is the right person or is is there or um, that it's sort of proportionate, et cetera. Um, it, it raises some questions and some challenges, um, I think, um, on that front. Um, and then, um, and also, I think all of this sort of gets us back to the what work is the USAD Bellum um, doing here and how much more important it becomes that if um, if you don't have a, a policy overlay that is doing a lot of this work to deal with some of these um, disagreements about the appropriate legal framework and what you have um, if you don't have the interpretation of the law of armed conflict reining things in geographically then you really have to rely a lot on uh, a tough interpretation of the USAD bellum to do that work to rein in where armed conflict rules apply. And um, when you start to sort of get into broad interpretations of things like unwilling or unable, um, or broad interpretations of imminence, or you know, as sort of both this, the U.S. government and the U.K. government, I suspect, will sort of get into their what their definition of imminence and how that has um, broadened out over time given threats posed by um, non-state actors and technological developments that have caused states to want to have a sort of broader view of what's an actual imminent threat. Um, and then the, the last um, point that I want to make that sort of triggered in the, the earlier discussions is that, um, to my mind, there's a, a problematic disconnect between sort of the USAD bellum and the triggering of the law of armed conflict um, in that when you're dealing with non-state actors that are operating across various um, locations. And that sort of traditionally, and I don't know, I'd be curious to know if others sort of agree with this, but um, 
when you have state versus state, and you're, you've got a, a use ad bellum right to act in self-defense, um, because the triggering threshold for the law of armed conflict, when you're talking about two states, is fairly low. Um, one state attacks another, then you respond using force. Those states are using force against one another, so you trigger the law of armed conflict. Um, that sort of common Article II standard is, is pretty automatically met. Um, but you don't have the same triggering standard when dealing with non-state actors. It's a much higher um, threshold for the use of force because everything below it is sort of a state law enforcement um, paradigm. And so you have to have in a sort of intensity of fighting, some sort of duration of the fighting, organization of the parties, um, threshold that has to be met, which to my mind means that you could have a situation where there is some sort of threat or there is an armed attack, but you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have satisfied the very different criteria for an armed conflict when you're talking about non-state actors. And I think that um, the U.S. government's position is just, well, we just apply the law of armed conflict to all uses of military force. And you know, they have a policy directive that says that that's their position. And Stephen Preston gave a speech where every single analysis that you do when the military is using forces, you get to apply in the law of armed conflict. And you don't ever have a situation where, yes, we can respond and address a threat and act in self-defense, but it doesn't have to be an armed conflict, right? Like we can, we can use military force and um, apply a sort of law enforcement human rights um, standard to it. But the way the U.S. government has been doing the legal analysis, we actually don't ever uh, get to that category, which, uh, to my mind, is a mistake. Okay. If, can, I, can I respond to a couple? Yeah, go right ahead. Real quick. Uh, I think it's really interesting to ponder this question that's raised by Rita's response to my claim that there's basically use ad bellum continuity. And so Rita's possible counterexample is the fact that the Trump administration did authorize the, the Sherat airfield strike in response to Syrian government use of chemical weapons. Um, so it is true that the Obama administration didn't actually carry out a strike. They, they did announce a red line, and infamously uh, so. The fact that it didn't, wasn't followed by an airstrike, I, at least, I'd be interested in what others think. I definitely didn't perceive that as reflecting any anxiety about the, the USAID Bellum aspects. I, I perceive that as... state what the concern about the USAID Bellum aspect was. What was the sort of criticism that a strike against a Syrian airfield that you announce you're doing because they've used chemical weapons. Well, I mean, I would say hurrah, but not everybody <laughs> said hurrah, and what's the right, legal so the, the, the argument is, so as we've talked about throughout the day, and mm -hmm. as, as Professor Dinstein really highlighted, you know, you're, when you're engaging in, in, in the intervention against the Islamic State in Syrian territory, you're supposed to be focused on the Islamic State. This was a separate matter. This was going directly against the Assad regime. So now you're squarely, you're not talking about unwilling and unable and the persons against whom you're right. invoking self-defense. You just have a straight up question of why is it the United States can use military force in an armed attack against the government of Syria? Um, my impression was that the decision not to follow through on that was a combination of the, the diplomatic policy and political considerations and from a legal perspective, the separation of powers domestic law concerns that became really acute after both the British and the French decided uh, to go down the road of seeking parliamentary approval, didn't get it in either case. They backed down and it put Obama in sort of a politically impossible situation. Um, but so that leaves me interpreting that event as one in which the administration announced publicly that they might do this, and therefore you can reasonably infer they thought legally they could do it, then they back down for other unrelated reasons. So I actually view that as, as an indirect partial endorsement of, of the same position the Trump administration took. 
Can I just say, so yeah, please go. even more specifically, apparently White House counsel had said, we think that such an action would be lawful. Now, she never explained why she thought that, but she was at least willing right. to say that. And in terms of continuity, you're right that the Obama administration did not actually strike in that case. But to the extent that we think of the Syria event as a manifestation of humanitarian intervention, we do have a prior Democratic president acting in a semi-comparable situation in Kosovo, right? So it's not that we have never acted as a country in a sort of humanitarian intervention context that does not seem to fit squarely within the charter. Can I just, just yeah, add one quick thing is that I think, um, no question, I think the separation of powers and lack of authorization from Congress um, played a very significant role, but, um, but I think we just actually don't know um, in what the legal basis um, would have been um, or is under the Trump administration, right? Neither, neither administration has um, been forthcoming in providing um, that analysis. And to the extent that the Trump administration has sort of laid out, since they did actually take a strike, there have been um, calls for them to lay out their legal justification under national law. And while they've said a little bit about their domestic law justification for it, um, they have said, as far as I know, absolutely nothing about their international law justification, including in the, the eight-page report. And um, there's FOIA litigation ongoing, trying to get access to the OLC memo that reportedly exists providing uh, the legal justification. Um, but so far, all that's been reported is the Article II um, justification to uh, engage in the strike as a matter of domestic law, and we just actually don't know what the international basis is. And I could just um, add to that that uh, when I read Charlie Savage's reporting and read the rest of the reporting and note that they don't say anything about this, my own impression for what it's worth is that they don't see any political or legitimacy advantage to be gained by saying anything about the international law um, justifications because essentially they are relying on the Obama uh, and before that you know, sort of long-standing stuff out there and the continuity tacitly is actually better than saying anything at all um, for whatever that's worth but I want to pull us back to the ad bellum questions because if you sort of take everything that's been said here about you know, what the body of the 2016 report is all about, which is in fact about the conduct rules, right? I mean, the conduct of hostilities and detention and targeting, all that stuff. Um, and yet, this is coming back to the ad bellum question. And I think a sort of even more fundamental question that uh, kind of in a way goes one step below where Rita sort of put us, is are the ad bellum considerations independent of the in bello conduct rules? Meaning, if you wanted to make the argument that these are two independent bodies of law and that the in bello rules apply when they apply and the ad bellum rules um, tell you whether it's an okay use of force or not okay use of force, but they don't tell you anything about each other. Um, then the argument for that would be, and it's a very traditional one, that where you have, in terms of the actual facts taking place, um, situations that meet up with what's in the Geneva Conventions and so on, um, then it is an armed conflict within the, ad, uh, the in bello rules and those rules apply. And it doesn't matter um, 
whether you're the right side or the wrong side in terms of aggression or anything like that. Your conduct is subject to the limitations, but also entitled to the permissions of the conduct of hostility rules. The view which has been pressing very hard against that um, in the context of non-state actors um, in cross-border stuff where they don't look like an organized military in any usual sense um, has been, well, if you do that, then you can just pretty much turn any situation into an armed conflict for purposes of using force in that case. So don't you wind up having to meet some kind of uh, ad bellum standard in order to trigger those things? Now, I would know we haven't brought it in here, but one of the interesting questions to me has always been the extent to which the 2016, man, uh, 2016 report and you know the Trump very short thing, to what extent do those, are they consistent with the DOD um, Law of War Manual and what it says about this? Um, the Law of War Manual, if I'm recalling exactly the sections correctly, I think takes something which is um, uh, sort of much more it stands on its own basis, meaning that if the United States conducts military operations in the way that this is framed or in the terms used by the Law of War Manual, conducts hostilities, then the fact of the conduct of hostilities triggers right, the uh, in bello conduct rules, but then adds a very significant thing, and it says, or intends to conduct hostilities, and I'm not getting that language quite right, but the point of it being that, um, that there are uses of force which do not meet the um, uh, requirements of being an armed conflict, either in the charter use or in um, what's actually written in the treaty law of uh, in Bello versus um, customary law in some way. Um, and that the manual seems to be um, at least accepting the possibility of that position. But then it holds back on the critical issue, which is you may wind up saying, we're conducting or intending to conduct hostilities against that non-state group. And it leaves open the question of whether the permissions of the conduct rules of the Inbello permissions are triggered along with the limitations. It says the targeting has to conform to the rules of war if you're going to conduct hostilities, whether or not it's an armed conflict or anything else. Um, but then it doesn't say whether you're entitled to the permissions such as the combatant's privilege. Supposing your people are captured in that place, it doesn't quite take that next step and say that where you conduct or intend to conduct hostilities as military operations, then those are the rules that apply. I think this is saying much more strongly that the whole body of Inbello applies. Um, but then the question is, what's the force of the ad bellum uh, requirements in terms of triggering that, in terms of limitations, do the ad bellum uh, rules trigger limitations geographically? Uh, do they trigger limitations in terms of the kind of group that can be targeted? Uh, in terms of going against discrete individuals? We haven't mentioned the London attack, but, you know, uh, and I 
don't think anybody is sort of, well, I take it back. I was about to say nobody seriously thinks of that in sort of legal terms, but I'm sure that the May government has thought of it very deeply in legal terms about the kinds of language and all the rest of that that they should use. Uh, can a discrete attack against an individual be the conduct of hostilities and the whole of it and be governed by that body of law? Does the fact that that doesn't seem to square with use at bellum generally, does that matter? So let me ask the question, sorry, after that long speech. Um, what's the relationship between those two? Are they sort of standalone, each on their own bottom, or are they in some way um, linked? Um, Rita, I thought you were saying in some way that they are linked somehow. Is that? That's fine. I thought you were saying that I was saying the opposite of that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, that's I, so I, I, I mean, on the one hand, I was trying to sort of caution that you shouldn't assume that just because you have a use ad bellum justification that that automatically triggers the law of armed conflict. And to take the simplest example, if you are operating based on consent, mm -hmm. um, for instance. So if you have the consent to be operating that state's territory, that eliminates the sort of UN charter sovereignty problem, but why are you applying the law of armed conflict? Mm -hmm. Unless you've done a separate analysis mm -hmm. of un under the law of armed conflict and its triggering um, tests. Um, so, I, so I think to some extent, um, my point is you have to do both analyses mm -hmm. separately, um, but that doesn't mean that they're unrelated and one doesn't have an impact on the analysis of, of the other. So, I mean, you could have the armed attack that you suffer, for instance, could be sufficiently large enough, I think, you can imagine a scenario where even in the, the NIAC non-state actor context, that it, that is sufficient to meet that triggering threshold for um, the in-bellow armed conflict. Um, Rules. So I, 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 do, I do see a relationship, but I think it's important to do a separate analysis to make sure you have satisfied both and not just say, oh, we just apply um, IHL across the board as long, you know, if we're using force. Yeah. So I, th I think your question picks up what seems to have been a perennial question for the past decade. <laughs> um, to, and, and maybe uh, you and Rita would disagree about this, but the, the way the U.S. thinks about the armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and now ISIS is, um, I think it thinks it can consolidate acts of hostilities that happen in a number of geographic areas. So you can imagine having a number of three attacks in country X, two attacks in country Y, four in country Z, and say collectively, if you put all those in a bucket, they would get us over the, the threshold into a NIAC. But uh, others say, no, no, you have to look at within a particular country whether there are sufficient acts of hostilities that get you up over the NIAC. So I think, just to tease out, that those are different approaches that um, tr treat differently the, the acceptability of consolidation of these attacks to get you into the conflict. The, the other question that I think maybe you're asking, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example and see if this helps. So um, United States decides in 1998 that it wants to conduct a strike on uh, bin Laden in a training camp in Afghanistan. Um, it's going to launch a missile. It's not going to have troops on the ground. Uh, it's a one-off strike, and the likelihood that bin Laden will somehow fire back at the aircraft, fire back at the drone, is, is zero. The question is, does the military, in conducting that strike, apply the use in bellow? Does it apply the rules of proportionality and distinction and precautions? And I think the military, I think the answer is yes, and I think the military thinks the answer is yes. Um, so in that case, you are effectively applying use in bellow rules before the armed conflict starts or as the armed conflict starts, 
and it's over immediately. Does, is that a paradigm mm -hmm. you had in mind? Yes, yes. And let me just, or actually, Bobby, if you were no, no, looking. No, I was interested in what you were going to say in response to that. Um, I guess what I am worried about, and I think has probably not been articulated enough over this past 10 or 15 years, really, is the concern about you analyze each one of these incidents separately, but if you decide just in practical terms that you're going to have to respond to this by the use of military force or the use of the tools of hostilities, and then all of a sudden you're worried legally about the question of whether this is going to be an armed conflict and can we use those rules or do we have to use this other set of rules, there's a very bad incentive there to use overkill. You wind up saying, okay, well, I guess we need to do something that raises this to the threshold level of intensity and all the rest of that stuff that we would not have done absent a concern about whether we've met the legal standard or not. And I've always thought that it was a very strong reason for um, recognizing the legitimate uses of hostilities in circumstances that would not, in the way that we've mostly been talking for the past 10 or 15 years, rise to the level of a NIAC. Also, the concern that it winds up putting it on a different basis from what state-to-state -state contact would be. If you intend to conduct hostilities with some other state and absent special conditions like shot across the border and things like that, um, any kind of conflict in a hostilities form between these two winds up triggering the use of in bellow rules. And yet we wind up having what weirdly appears to be a stricter standard for a NIAC and say you can't apply them until it reaches a certain level of intensity that leaves the strategic initiative on the part of the non-state actor, which I just think is not going to go anywhere with states. I, I would agree that there's a perverse incentive there if we get too strict at where that NIAC threshold for field of application is, but it, it is higher, as Rita said. It has to be because you have to clear space for uh, law enforcement activity. That don't, tur don't turn all the riots and disorders into armed conflict. Uh, one thing just to complicate Ashley's uh, scenario, so when we think about uh, 1998 and the East African embassy bombings in their aftermath, because we know how it turned out, you know, there, there was one set of, well, two simultaneous sets of tomahawk strikes. But the idea was that if that didn't work, they'd try again, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in actual practice, at least the, the, the military at least had a green light contingent on commander-in-chief approval that the intelligence was sufficiently actionable and there was otherwise an appropriate set of circumstances to strike again. Famously or infamously, there were at least two instances where they came very close and ultimately didn't strike again. But um, if you look at it from the point of view, not of when was force actually used, but when did they think that they might use force, when were they prepared to use force, uh, at least through 99 and into 2000, they, uh, they were in this posture. And then it gets kind of weird, and it just underscores how fuzzy this whole area is, because you get to the USS coal bombing, and a, a duplicative problem both of being unsure initially on the attribution, and then by the time they became sure, a sense on the part of the newly, uh, newly minted Bush administration that maybe the event had become too stale. Now, that wasn't necessarily a legal judgment, uh, might have been better characterized as a diplomatic and political judgment about how weird it would look to come out later on, even if it actually fits the model that uh, Professor Dinstein described earlier, where sometimes the intelligence doesn't develop till much later and you can still have that responsive strike. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is um, when we look at the uh, sporadicness or isolation of these seemingly one-off strikes, 
we shouldn't necessarily assume it's quite as sporadic as, as it seems, and that's not even counting for the pos accounting for the possibility of clandestine DOD activity or covert CIA activity that may further muddy the waters, but we just don't know about it. I am going to open things up to uh, questions from the audience, and we'll start here. I think we've got about um, 10, 12 minutes. And I think we want a microphone to Charlie. Here it comes. Just uh, one quick observation about the Syria strike. There were 800 U.S. troops on the ground in Syria at the time, and that might have been a factor that was considered. I want to ask a really kind of two, two questions, really. One, what, has, what does the United States stand to gain with more transparency? I can see transparency on the, on the 20,000 foot level in terms of the broad legal parameters, but when we get down to telling the adversary that you're not going to be struck, and what, if there are any, if you keep a civilian around you, you're not going to be struck. What, what is the advantage to that? And did the Obama administration gain anything, gain supporters because they disclosed that particular uh, tactical policy decision? And then the, the other broad question is, how does all this apply to a potential strike with North Korea? And, um, and Professor Dinstein absolutely disagrees with me on this because I just read your entry in the uh, Max Planck uh, Encyclopedia, The Use of Force, that just came out. Uh, what do you think about the role of armistice law? In other words, uh, armistice law, traditionally, you don't need a use ad bellum. And pr Professor Dinstein, and I, I stand to be corrected by you, you pretty much say it's dead and there is no such thing, but the UN is still has a, a military command in, in uh, Korea and so forth, and do you really need a use ad bellum justification? Wow. Uh, I can take the first question. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was aimed at no, me because we've the had first this question. <laughs> we've, and, and maybe we have different answers to it. But um, so one, I would um, push back a little bit just on whether that's even the right question, right? So I think it's an important question, but I don't think like what does the administration have to gain from transparency is like the only question, right? Because transparency is really important for democracy, um, both for just for accountability and oversight. Um, we need to know what. Um, our, our government is doing um, and on, on what uh, basis. So I think there's just sort of a, a really important just inherent um, value um, and necessity for some minimum level of transparency. Um, but I think um, there is actually a lot for the administration um, to gain on national security and use of force transparency in a number of different ways. Um, a really uh, important letter that I would point people to that was sent to the um, Trump administration actually just about one year ago, so shortly after uh, Trump took over, um, you know, more than three dozen former very high-level national security officials wrote to the Trump administration on the, the sort of suite of use of force issues, and one of their top messages to the incoming Trump administration was the importance of transparency on these issues for the legitimacy of U.S. operations and why that is so essential for um, cooperation from allies that are so essential to the counterterrorism fight, um, for reducing and preventing terrorist recruitment and propaganda, for gaining support of local populations on the ground um, and intel that we need, um, and also just sort of like the whole winning hearts and minds. Um, of course. Very loud. <laughs> <laughs> Being dogmatic about this because recording it for 
wasn't a single military person. And they were all politicos of the Obama administration. And I'm open to the idea of, of what they were saying, but is there any data to support that? And when you ask people, they don't, it's their speculation, it's their mirror imaging of what other people in other cultures might think. And if there's data to support it, I think that's, that's something different. And Rita, I'm gonna say very fast response because I wanna hear about North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, well, first of all, there, there were folks um, from both Democratic and Republican administrations who signed onto that letter. And then in terms of data, I actually think that's a, a place where more accountability and transparency is really important, right? We've been um, involved in these armed conflicts for 17 plus years now for some of them and um, sort of what do we have to what extent is what we're doing um, effective to what extent are we actually you know creating more terrorists um, or, or not right it, it's a difficult thing to quantify but I think it's really important that we are asking those questions and actually conducting that analysis to show um, what's working and what's not North Korea Oh, can I just say one more thing on that? I actually think, Charlie, there might be another slightly more instrumental reason, and that is uh, sort of a pineo juris in state practice, right? 66-page document from the United States that very clearly articulates legal theories, legal interpretations, the opinio juris. No other state has ever put out anything like this. Is it going to persuade the rest of the world forever and all time that this is the right interpretation? No. But is it a valuable weight on those scales for a, for a sort of long-term thing? Yes. I agree with that, but when you get down to telling me that is a very specific tactic of Kim Jong-un. Yeah, you're worried, you about, the, you're worried about incentivizing human shields, I yeah. think. Yeah. All right. Um, North Korea. Now, prefacing North Korea okay. just to say, oh, did you want to weigh in on this? No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Um, we've been talking, because of the framework of this document, essentially about uh, actions against non-state actors, but uh, I think a lot of people in this room would probably put money that the primary questions that are going to be arising over the next 20 years, many, many of them are going to be state-on-state -state tensions, conflicts of various kinds, and that non-state actors are not the only kind of national security issue, and North Korea sort of puts that on the table. Um, I'm going to interpret the North Korea question to be um, what would be the use ad bellum arguments for and against for what the administration articulated, and I think Julian Koo put it, or somebody put it, uh, the bloody nose strategy, right? We're not, is that lawful? How does one frame the use ad bellum um, arguments? Yeah, everybody wants to go first. <laughs> I'll say a few things. Okay. Um, I don't think any of us, it, it seems good, none of us super want to jump on that hand grenade in part because <laughs> you'd want to have the very specific facts about, okay, is there, has there been a right. new development with ICBM technology? Has there been a particular intelligence reason to think that we've inched closer to some sort of, you know, attack on Seoul? Has there been some provocation that actually did involve the DPRK actually, as they often have done in the past, using force across the border against our allies? Um, so having said all that, I won't, I'll say, so I can't decide until I know more. Um, I, I hadn't thought much about the armistice law question until you said it. So I'm going to go see your post, and I will go look at the entry as well. I do think it raises an interesting question. It, it highlights how... It's, <laughs> <laughs> 
so everyone needs to check that out. It's definitely worth paying attention to. It does seem, it calls to mind the question of, you know, looking back to 2003 in arguments mm -hmm. about perhaps the authorities already there drawing on armistice-related. I, I realize it's a little bit different, but um, you have to wonder whether the reaction to 2003 perhaps puts a spike in any such line of thinking. Um, that'd be something I'd want to think about. Um, it's, it's a little hard to imagine how we'd get any... Bearing in mind that this isn't an argument that's likely to come before a particular legal decision maker the way a domestic legal dispute would. So then we have to ask, so, so why are we having these particular arguments about what the United States might do f with North Korea? It's because the quality of our legal argument will have some impact, some impact on the degree of domestic political support we have for the policy and a lot of impact on the international diplomatic support and cooperation. And so then the question becomes, if you can come up with a pretty clever armistice-related argument, would it cut any ice within either of those audiences in an environment where it's really not going to get briefed and resolved in sort of a court-like fashion, most likely, though I guess one never knows. I think the lesson of 2003 is probably not, which is not to say that the argument shouldn't be developed to its fullest if it comes to that, but I wouldn't put a lot of, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it mattering with the actual audiences for whom we would want to have the best possible arguments. So I would just say um, the 66-page document does, in fact, articulate um, how the Obama administration thought about the imminence question in the mm -hmm. anticipatory self-defense world. And of course, um, as many of you know, uh, there, there are different um, temporal tolerances for uh, use of force and self-defense before the armed attack manifests itself. So the most modest pre-attack self-defense is the Caroline imminent standard. The Bush administration articulated something that is further back in time from the actual um, uh, consolidation of the armed attack, and this is this idea of preemptive self-defense. So one thing that, that scholars have thought about and worried about and states have thought and worried about is how do you avoid a, a slippery slope that gets you too, too far from the actual manifestation of the attack? And one thing that, that states and scholars have done is they've thought about and identified factors that they think are relevant to assessing the legitimacy of a, a, a pre preventive, pre sorry, preemptive self-defense move. And so that's what the, the document here in the Obama um, 66-page report does is it, it trots out factors that people like Brian Egan had talked about in their speeches, uh, things like the nature and immediacy of the threat, so immediacy still being a relevant factor, the probability of an attack, and whether the anticipated attack is part of a continuing pattern of activity and so on. So my guess is that within the administration, if this is a topic of conversation, they are working through the applicability of these factors based on the intelligence that they have and that we don't. Do we have time for one more question, Dave? One or two. One or two, great. Okay, Mr. Williams. Well, having had my fill this morning, maybe I shouldn't take up the last slot, but uh, let me just uh, a couple of quick uh, comments. Uh, one on the um, uh, Syria and uh, the Obama um, uh, question. Now, we were we had we were engaged in hostilities in Syria prior to the emergence of ISIL. So, and the Obama administration did not come forward with either a uh, domestic or international justification. In fact, we had a discussion at an advisory committee on the State Department advisory committee on international law um, meeting as to whether or not we could justify. Um, whether or not the free Syria, this uh, <laughs> movement, 
uh, could meet the definitions of a state and therefore we could do the Syria operation on a collective self-defense basis. So, and then along comes this red line and the, um, and I don't know if we're engaging with ISIL at that point, but anyway. Um, and I think he could have made, as uh, Trump could have made, a self-defense argument on the chemical weapons uh, issue. Uh, now Trump had the addition of the ISIL, so that helped him out. On this, um, I'm sorry, I'm, and I guess in my rustiness, I've missed um, a lot of the questions on the <clears throat> rising to the level of the NIAC and so forth. Uh, but uh, but um, and I recognize that you know you know you want to you want to make a distinction between armed conflict and um, riots or what have you, but I think you are draw. I think you're assume, giving too much importance to that distinction, and I think it ought to be quite easy to find that one is in an armed conflict, and I think you're drawing some incorrect legal conclusions um, on the where there have been some uh, situations of non-action, um, and there could be a humpteen reasons why uh, the Brits have not resort, had done a nuclear strike on the Soviets, I mean on the Russians, because of the Salisbury poisoning. So um, don't jump to those conclusions. The 98 um, Obama um, bin Laden attack, I mean the thing that makes that difficult to analyze is again the Clinton administration never came out with a, um, a use of force justification. And um, so, um, and then the third on North Korea, I think there's just no question about it that the North, that if there is a, a, a strike on North Korea, it will be a self-defense strike because, of the, because the threat has, has risen to that level that it's justified on the concept of self-defense. Now, I don't think that when you get through with the hand-wringing over what eminence is in either principle eight, um, which is just repeated verbatim by Brian in his speech, and basically that's all that paragraph in the Obama report relies on in its construction of eminence, except it adds the sentence from uh, Brennan's speech, which I think closes whatever gaps they are. And so I think if you look at that language and, okay, so the, the North Koreans will not have the um, intercontinental ballistic missile capability until somewhere between two months and two years. Okay, you can't do a uh, strike today on the self-defense basis, but you can do it in two months. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that we haven't really talked about um, on this panel so far is sort of the underlying um, purpose of the UN Charter in the first place. And I think, you know, that um, Bethlehem's principle number eight that is cited in the framework report and that the UK legal advisor also um, spelled out um, in a speech that, you know, there has been, as you said, an effort to build some opinio juris on that front. I think that is it's evidence of states that are trying to grapple with very real threats, but at the same time, um, the purpose of the prohibition on the use of force in the UN Charter is that 
going to war is not meant, we're not supposed to have that be our knee-jerk first response, right? The, if we want to prevent another all-out world war, we need a mechanism to force states to deal with um, problems, issues, threats, concerns um, in every other possible way before resorting to force and only resorting to force in a very narrow set of circumstances. And you know, if you go to the text of Article 51, it's if an armed attack occurs. And most states sort of have interpreted that or stretched that to say, well, you don't have to wait till you know the, the bomb has actually landed, but how far back can you go before that? Um, you know, how, how imminent does it need to be? And I think when you look at sort of where the charter started from and the actual text of Article 51, and then you compare that to um, that paragraph on imminent armed attacks in the 2016 report, um, we're getting uh, pretty dangerously far afield from the original purpose but at the same time, there's some really important real threats and new um, weapons technology that we also have to grapple with. So I, I think it's a real challenge, but one where we shouldn't uh, lose sight of the original big picture intent where we get so singularly focused on the immediate threat that is before us that we aren't necessarily looking at the grand scheme of things that um, the UN Charter was designed to prevent. I'm gonna take that as um, the first in a set of offers to sort of sum up because I think we are actually. Um, anybody want to make sort of a closing um, statement? I think this actually does, first of all, point to something that we never really directly addressed. Because we were focused, as this document is, on the self-defense rationales and the self-defense um, issues, and I agree completely that it can lead us to a particular patch of weeds um, without sort of looking above and seeing at what the sort of um, larger architecture uh, is. Um, all right, if there's no further comments people would like to make, then thank you very much, and uh, we're done. Thanks,